Is the goal of work pure, unadulterated happiness? Uh, no, not really. In fact, at times, it's actually the discomfort, the hard work, and the misery that makes the moments of satisfaction and joy at work so meaningful. In this week's episode of Let's Make Work Human, we speak with the amazing Salima Hemani, a seasoned, results-driven organizational development and human capital executive speaker and executive coach with over two decades of experience working with top clients ranging from government agencies to private corporations. In this episode, we explore ambition, representation, the value of being an immigrant, and so much more. Salima is a president and principal consultant of SZH Consulting, helping people and organizations transform. It is delightful talking to someone whose work is so adjacent to ours and matters in this topsy-turvy world of work that we all live in. Have a listen. Imagine if work was actually good for people, not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. Mo, tell everybody who's here. Tell everybody what's what's happening today. Welcome, everybody. So good to have you here, May and Salima. So lovely to have you here. And everybody that's listening, you've heard Salima's bio. And what a delight to finally have the time and the space. I won't go through the formal introduction of Salima Hamani, other than to say that the way that I learned about your work which I think you know, but for our listeners, is accidental. And it was one of those things where I just was like, wow, what a gift from the universe. Because we put out a call on the social, in particular, I think it was on LinkedIn. We also put it out on our newsletter to our community saying, hey, we're getting ready for season two. Who should we interview? Who should we talk to? Because we knew we wanted more interviews in this season than we did in season one. And you were one of the people who came up as recommended by our community. And I was like, who is Salima Hamani? I've not heard of her work. And let me go check it out. And I did. And I found myself really intrigued at very much lots of synchronicity to the work we do. So I emailed you or messaged you from Mm -hmm. LinkedIn. I can't remember which one it was. And it was one of my favorite moments because Salima emailed me back and said, basically, can you just clarify who you are and what this is about? And I thought, and when then we scheduled time to talk, we talked, had this great conversation, decided this would be a great fit. And I thought it was so interesting because it was reflective of partly what happens in the social spaces where we get these random connections from people, 90% of which are like sales. Somebody's going to ask you to pay something to be in a magazine cover, or they want to sell you their selling system. And so I appreciated Salima, you're kind of like eyebrows raised, like, what is this? And then the ability to have this generative conversations. We we did it. We landed here. Yeah, we did. It's truly such an honor to be here, Mo and May. It's funny you referenced that email. I was reading it when you first reached out to me. It was through email. And I was waiting for the part where you were going to ask, so if you give me $2,000, then you can be on the 
<laughs> that, that line wasn't there in the email. So I said, okay, maybe I should check. I should look into it. It might be legit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great that you look because these things get so tiring. But a lot of times I just blow yeah. past them. I just ignore them. I'm like, oh, it's somebody else trying to sell me something. So I'm really grateful that you were willing to take the time and say, wait, who is this Mo Carey person? And what is this podcast? And, and you, when we spoke, I think one of the things you said to me was like, your business looks legit. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, so does yours. <laughs> it's, not- <laughs> it's funny how we have to say that now. <laughs> Salima, you're a cultural anthropologist. What is a cultural anthropologist? Uh-huh. What does it mean to do that as a job? And then will you explain all of that we're in second grade? <laughs> second grade, yeah. Okay. Actually, I call myself an organizational anthropologist to be exact. Okay. And to be honest with you, it's a self-appointed title. <laughs> Good. Um, I like those. <laughs> so organizational anthropology really refers to studying an organization's systems and cultures to solve business problems. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what I and my colleagues at SZH Consulting do. Whether we're brought in to do a redesign of an organizational structure, facilitate strategic planning help with the merger and acquisition, do leadership development. Our work is founded on a deep assessment and understanding of the organization's systems, culture, dynamics, and environment. Anthropology is all of that. Say I stumbled upon this. I loved studying anthropology when I was in college as part of my undergraduate degree. I never thought about pursuing it as a career, but over the years in my work as an organizational development consultant, a lot of it is founded on a good understanding, a deep understanding of uh, of the organization's inner working systems, cultures. Mm -hmm. And that organizational anthropology is part of the way we do org development work. Mo, you got any thoughts on that? Oh my gosh, I just love it. And I I especially love the fact that it's self-appointed because... (laughs) Those are the best titles of all, for sure. And I just, it's one of the things that made me so excited to meet you and to talk together because although I'm not, I didn't study anthropology and I don't fully even understand the field with a lot of depth, but I definitely resonate with what it is that you're saying that you do. And Mm -hmm. our work, you know, very similar, of course, that systemic view, that point perspective of being able to look at the human beings in the system, in the context of community, for lack of a better word, both in the rearview mirror and also in the future mirror around mm-hmm. what is it that we want people to be able to see in the rearview mirror a hundred years from now in terms of legacy, I think is fascinating. It also honors something that we talk a lot about, May, which is the naturally occurring tensions between the needs of the system or the organization and the needs of the individuals. We're constantly in a kind of dynamic tension mm-hmm. around how do we manage, how do we navigate that paradox as leaders in systems, but of course for us both as coaches and consultants to systems between serving the people, the individual leaders, the individual employees of systems, and then joining the system itself, which has its own light. Now. So yeah, Salima, this is an ongoing battle. I don't know if mm-hmm. it's a battle, an ongoing conversation for Mo and I about the system and the people. Yeah. And that it just comes up over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, wait, we had to go there. We had to go there, maybe because. Okay, go ahead. It comes up over and over again, partly because, and this is something I find really refreshing about our partnership, May, is you're self-identified as a millennial. You also didn't study in school. You are a creative. You studied art. Mm-hmm. You're 
excellent photographer. And so your your background isn't the same as mine or Salima's in terms of, of that systems thinking and orientation. And so one of the things that I find fascinating about our conversations is that where we've noticed the depth of dialogue really increasing is where it seems like those differing sets of needs are in conflict. Like sometimes mm-hmm. men, you'll say, like with tears in your eyes, like how can we help this human? This human mm-hmm. is hurting. This human is in pain. This I want to be able to make a difference to the people that are suffering, let's say, from a toxic culture. And I am with you. And I'm like, yes, I want to help them too. And we also are trying to serve the system because if we don't have the system or the organization thriving, then, they, then no humans will thrive in it. But it creates some strategic decisions and focus that are are really complex. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Salima, like how do you navigate that tension between those differing needs? Or what do you think about what we're saying here around where May and I sometimes rumble? Yeah. And as you can imagine, Mo, that that tension comes up a lot in our work, right? Because when we are brought into an organization, we're often, for example, even when we're doing, let's say, supporting an organization through their redesign effort, right? Restructuring, we have to Keep in mind the system requirements, right? This new structure is in service to whatever the business need the organization is trying to fulfill. At the same time, we cannot forget about the impact on people, the whole people component. Because if you ignore either one, you're not going to get to the right solution. So we have to hold both things in hand and we have to find the balance. I think what happens in organizations, oftentimes that there is this I think a false dichotomy that gets created, right? Either you are, you cannot at the same time balance the needs of the organization, the balance the needs of the system with the while balance with the needs of the people in the system, right? And I would argue that you can absolutely do that and you must do that. You must find that right balance, right? You cannot ignore one thing in in service of the other thing because they're so interconnected. And I think more and more leaders are recognizing in organizations to develop effective organizations, to be successful, even from a business performance perspective, you cannot ignore and forget about and stop investing in the people component. Every single business is in people business, no matter what industry, not no matter what product you are developing, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you're as good as the people that you have in your organization that you're supporting your business. So that people component is really critical. And I think it has to be balanced. And that's what we do with it. I think that's one of the unique perspectives that we bring into organizations, into our work, is that we are able to effectively balance both, both those sides. It's a paradox. It creates naturally occurring tensions. How do we hold both at the same time? It's uh, not that easy. Yeah. It's not that easy because I think that the thing we run into is that I find myself wanting to villainize one side or the other when that's not actually what the story is. I want somebody to be at fault. I want it to be like, okay, let's just fix this problem and then it'll be okay. Because that seems like the very easy way to do it when it's actually a much more nuanced problem that has nothing to do actually with the system or the people, but of the the bits in between. And that's human nature, right? Our human mind is wired in a way that we want to simplify the problem the the, the best we can. We want to articulate the problem in its most simplified form, right? So that we could solve it. But to your point, May, that's not always the case. The Not all problems can be simplified and solved by simplifying them. Some problems are very complex. We call them adaptive 
challenges, right, that require a multitude of different types of thinking and interventions, and they all have to be balanced. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said, May, about the temptation to villainize one or the other. And I think we've been talking about this lately, Salima, a little bit around this powerful dynamic where we know that toxic culture is the single greatest cause of what people refer to as the great resignation. Mm -hmm. Culture is critical to thriving in every organization. Mm -hmm. Yet we often laugh at this idea of who are all these leaders that are creating toxic cultures? Because if you meet them on the street, they are often nice people. Like they're not people that are, they're human beings that are not like purposefully building something that is bad for people. But it's mm-hmm. easy to put toxic leaders, for example, to villainize them, may like the, the, or to villainize the system overall. And there are some, there are some villains in terms of the tensions we face, such as if profit is the only North Star, if profit is the only thing that we care about, then we can see deleterious consequences down the line. But I think, May, I appreciate your, your saying that because I think all of us, we want to have, as you said, Salima, we want to have a villain and it's powerful to really reframe that and say, actually, it all made sense at the time and the people in these systems and even the systems themselves exist for reasons that we may have forgotten or that we're not sure mm-hmm. what they are, but they, their reasons were certainly not to create toxicity. Yeah. So then what happened? which is where the anthropology comes in. What happened yeah. that landed us here? And then what are we going to do going forward? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Both of you just had a birthday. <laughs> Let's just cut straight to that. How was it for both of you? And what does it mean for both of you right now? Because I'm recognizing also that this is a, this is a very special podcast because I feel like it's two people that probably should have met earlier. And now you're meeting right now, which is so exciting. Should I even be here right now? This is exciting. I But I let's start with the birthday because that's probably... What does it mean? What does it feel like to move forward in your life right now and the privilege and luxury of that? Not everybody gets to age that way. I'll start with that. Luckily, we did meet before the pod. So that's what got oh, us so good. excited. Cool. I'm so excited about the pod. I don't know about you, Salima. I think I'm I think my birthday was how do you say it? Was more advanced than yours because I just turned <laughs> 61 on Monday, uh, May 8th, and I believe your birthday is May 9th. So happy birthday. I agree, May. And I don't know about you, but like where I'm sitting with it is that I feel in a phase right now where I'm celebrating birthdays again, like for a while there, maybe 48 to 60. I was kind of like, yeah, birthday, because it felt a little bit like, oh man, getting older, marching towards the grave. I just had more of a negative spin, I think, on birthdays compared to like when you're a child or a young person and every birthday is like a milestone. But right now at this age, for me, I feel like the birthday, like you said, May, I feel like it's heck yes, made it another year on this earth, another day, which feels wonderful. And also for me, it feels like my husband, and I were just talking about this. He's 65 and we were talking about this hard earned wisdom of, you know what? I know some stuff now. I have some experience born of life's challenges and it feels good to be able to be grounded in some of that breath experience. Not that I have all the answers. I don't, I definitely feel like I'm still learning, but I also feel grounded in, in kind of capacity of years that I've had on this earth. So that's what it has felt like a little bit to me. I don't, I also don't really give to F's about a lot of things. Like I've let go a lot of a lot of 
I don't care. I don't care what people think as much yeah. as I yeah. did in my 40s about how I look, about how thin I am, about whether my ideas are good enough or whether I'm doing something the, the way they want to do it. If I'm parenting the way they want or if I'm running my business the way they want, I feel a lot more agnostic around, yeah, whatever. You can have whatever opinion you want. That's so cool, Mo. I will admit, I'm not fully there yet about not caring as much. <laughs> I'm slowly getting there. <laughs> I'm not as evolved as you are when it comes to that. I also want to say, I think you you just mentioned your age. So, I, but I think looking at you, you're aging backwards, Mo, because you look incredible. <laughs> I didn't realize that we were our birthdays were so close. Now it makes sense why we clicked so well from our first conversation. So what does this birthday mean to me? For me, it means I have less and less time to do all the things I want to do. Mm -hmm. I am unapologetically ambitious. In fact, <laughs> earlier in my career, I told one of my leaders, I, I told her I'm a very ambitious person. And she told me, this is the advice she told me, gave me. She said, never say that you're ambitious. You shouldn't say that. That doesn't look good. No. <laughs> and I was like, nope, you cannot make me. And now with more years of wisdom, I am even more sure that I want to say that. And I'm not ambitious in terms of accumulating wealth or power. That's not the stuff that I'm looking for. But I am ambitious in terms of making my mark, making a difference in the world, doing things that future generations can benefit from making the world a better kinder place that's i've said that for years my purpose in life is it sounds mm -hmm. very grand but i want to make i want to leave the world a better kinder place and i feel like i have less and less time to do that and to be honest with you sometimes i feel like i am just starting to find my footing in this world getting the clarity and the wisdom that i wish i had 20 years back. There is a lot that I still want to do. There is a lot of world that I want to see. So I feel like I have less time now to do that. Like you, Mo, I'm not, I don't get excited about my birthday like I used to when I was younger, not in the same way, <laughs> right? But I feel like I, every birthday, I'm more grateful for what I have and more aware of how much less time I have to do types of things I want to do and have the type of impact I want to have. Oh, so it makes me a lot more reflective. Yes, that's definitely true for me. Both, both a lot of what you said is true for me, especially about this idea of, and I sometimes actually feel a little bit ashamed about it. My team knows this. May's been part of some of these calls where I come to a team meeting and I am despondent because something I've been working on has hit another layer of clarity and I have mm. regret mm. that I didn't have that clarity 10 years. Wow. Taking, is it really taking this long for me to get the kinds of clarity that I want? And the truth is that, yes, it is. It's still, it does take this long and it's still unfolding. Right. I, it hasn't been able to be forced despite some of my efforts. So I vacillate sometimes between yeah. feeling shame about that and also feeling, as you said, gratitude about that yeah. to say, you know what, Hey, at least I'm getting some of that clarity now, but there is That's that urgency right. of time know that I do feel like how many more years do I have? How many more clients can I help? Because it's it's a narrower path on the back end maybe than it was, which can be anxiety producing too. So I, yeah, I'm with you there. I wish you could see my face right now. 
this podcast is turning into something that I had not anticipated. So I'm going to check in with both of you that I like I have a lot of questions actually to the both of you that have to do with what is it like to do the work you're doing because you probably both entered this specific work at a time where there were not very many women alongside you. And now we're just meeting on a podcast talking very casually, actually, about making very large change inside of big systems mm-hmm. that you all do just every day. So will you like take a trip into the way back machine just for a second, both of you? Because we've had a podcast episode, actually, that was a pretty, I think it was a flop. <laughs> I'll just say it right now. But it was about ambition. And I think it was a flop because I didn't know. I still don't really know my own ambition because I'm in a different stage of my career. I'm in a different place with that. But it's refreshing to hear both of you talk about it in a way that is not about strong arming or power or any of those ways, but instead of just feels natural. So will you both just take a trip into the Wayback Machine? What did it feel like to have ambition and move into a place where you didn't see yourself represented very much? It's such a powerful question, May. I love it. I <laughs> so I did not grow up in this culture, which is in 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 the in, in the dominant Western culture. I, I grew up in an Eastern culture, right? There were expectations were very different. There were a lot more limitations. So if I go all the way back then, I could have never imagined being able to do the things that I have been able to do in my career. I dare not even dream that. I didn't even think how it would be possible. And it makes me emotional. I think the best thing that happened in my life is when my parents made the decision to migrate to United States. I was 16 years old. So it wasn't an easy age to start <laughs> cultures, let alone such a big difference coming from an Eastern to a Western culture. But yeah. had they not done that, had they not made the sacrifices that they made. And these struggles, right? They were in their 40s, late 40s, 50s, when we migrated here. And to start a new career for them and start a new life was very difficult for them. But they thought that was the right decision. Mm-hmm. So this is where they wanted their daughters to grow up. Mm-hmm. And even then, coming here started opening up. I started realizing that I can be ambitious, that I actually can go for the things that, that I see other people achieving. But then the limitations were in different ways. I am not only a woman, I'm a woman of color. I'm an immigrant and there weren't a, and there still are not, unfortunately, a lot of role models. There's, it's starting to change, but not as much as I would like to see change. <laughs> so for a, lot, for a long time, I said, now I can dream it, but I don't know if it's possible for me to achieve it. I don't know what that road is going to look like. And I, again, going back to gratitude, I'm so grateful for the mentors I've had in my career, outside of my professional life, my family members who told me repeatedly, you have it in you to do it. And I think that my number one supporter, my dad, who passed away in 2020, he always believed, you will do it. Trust me, you will do it. I Eventually, it started happening. It started happening. And I think there's still a long way to go for me. I still stumble. I'm, as I said, I'm ambitious and I'm, I'm unapologetically ambitious, but doubts come and I don't always see a role model for where I want to go and what kind of the type of impact I want to make. But I've learned through the wisdom, the little bit of wisdom that I've gained through the years that I cannot stop. I cannot be paralyzed by my own doubts that I have to keep on taking one step forward. And it's no longer just about me. I have a young daughter, so I want to 
create the role model that I want to see for myself, for her and other roles like her. So it's not just for me, it's for the, for my daughter's generation that's coming up. Bravo. I feel the depth of appreciation for your move mm. and, and the power of that decision that your parents made on behalf of the future, really of the family yeah. embodied through you and your siblings. And it's really powerful as an experience I don't have. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. And I'm also noticing what you just said that feels accurate for me too, May. And this mm. is where it makes me feel sad is there still are not role models. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's where I feel some fatigue because I thought it would be different now. There are role models. There, there are role models of women in key leadership positions in politics and in government that didn't exist back when I was a child, but there's mm-hmm. still, there's still in our field, like in organizational development, there's mm-hmm. still not very many sure. writers and thinkers in this space that aren't pop gurus, like meaning people that have become really, really big because of a self-help approach or a book that went viral or whatever. I think that there are, yeah, there's some inspiration out there, but from a professional practice, there's still not that many leadership and culture development specialists, mm-hmm. cultural anthropologists, mm-hmm. designing and helping CEOs and their teams lead systems through through change. That There's just still not very many of us mm-hmm. that are women. And so mm-hmm. I feel some sadness about that, but I also feel hope because I think there's, the need is still there, maybe more, more present than ever. And I have a lot of hope that we can be th- those role models as well. Yeah. But the other thing that you touched on that definitely rings true for me is this idea of ambition and where does it come from around the wanting. It's a term you use, May, a lot that I really love. You've talked about the wanting, being able to want. And I think hearing your story, Salima, of being an immigrant makes me think about the wanting that your parents had, Mm -hmm. wanting of a better life. I think about part of my story is that my parents were really impacted by the disease of alcoholism. My father got sober when I was six and for a number of years was still fairly mentally unstable as a result of his mental health issues. And my mother had dropped out of college out of Stanford University to marry him and found Mm -hmm. herself without economic means with three young children. And I think that my mother's wanting started out as just being able to have us have food on the table. We were free lunch kids for sure, which was ironic given my parents' background that we landed in that space. But for me, as my mother's career took off and as my father got mentally more grounded and he re-entered his career, he was an architect and mm-hmm. they started to create the lives separately that mattered to them. I had this tremendous spaciousness, which I heard you describe as well, which was that they believed in me mm-hmm. and my siblings. They believed that we could do what we wanted. I was coming of age in post-feminism, but just my mother was an early feminist probably. And so I felt there was this like unlimited ceiling, like anything was possible for me as a woman. What I find really intriguing right now is that I didn't get the message that it would be as hard as it was, as it has been. Do it all. My mom forgot to tell me that part of the memo. You can do anything, but it's going to be hard to juggle it all at once, especially parenting and working, working a big job, a big career, and being able to have like serious economic means because there's working to, to 
there's working and then there's working with ambition in terms of wealth generation and also systemic impact, which is where I fall. And my income has been primary in both of my marriages. And I've really had to, I've always been a working parent. And that has, for me, that's where the ambition has bumped up against the wanting in some ways of, yeah, I want this, but I also want this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to be a really good grounded mother and parent and partner. And I really want to have an impact in the world and be able to build wealth for my family. That has been, those two things have come in conflict because sometimes they're not possible at exactly the same time. And that's where I sometimes like my mother's deceased. She died two years ago. My dad died almost 30 years ago, but I've mm. often, I often long with both of them to sit them down and, and down and talk about like, what did you imagine? What were you thinking? How were you thinking this unfolded? Because I'm pretty sure that the way they thought it would unfold is not the way that it did unfold. So that where that lands me is like what I want and I want it for my daughter. I also want it for May, you know, my employees, my young employees. And I also really want it for my sons. I want them to be able to have ambition, yes, but also the sanctity of love and family and in particular parenting, which I think for my, certainly my parents' generation was truly not available to men in Mm. the way that it was available to women. And so I, I notice myself right now really having wishes on both sides of the equation for, for, for men and women and all other gender identities to say, actually, we all deserve to have economic stability, to have purpose in our work, and to have high quality relationships with the families that we build and create in our communities. Like we all deserve to have all of that. And I think that we've had to make again, like binary choices about that in the past. I hope that that we don't have to make, I hope people don't have to make that in the future. Isn't it interesting hearing Selima Hemani's take on hard work, why it matters, and that it isn't always a bad thing? If you're finding yourself thinking about leadership and transformation at work, it just might be time to get some support for how you show up in your key role. Our Leading People program is an eight-week transformative journey into activating the talents of your people without you having to be a hero. Check out our website at leadingpeople.com for details and to apply. It's a cohort-based program, which means that you get our expertise as well as the wisdom of peers just like you facing the same challenges every day. Who you are is how you lead. So isn't it time to invest in yourself? Now, back to the show. I'm so proud of you both. <laughs> Thank you for trusting me to go down that road. I just feel like that was, that's so important. I'm, What's it like for you to hear that, May? Because you're in the thick of it now. Yeah, I guess that's like where it makes <laughs> that is where it makes me emotional. Is that I think there aren't very many conversations that I'm hearing out there where it's a lot. There's a lot of conversations focused around like women in business and women leadership. And what I'm taking away from this conversation is that the experience of being a woman with ambition working for multiple things at one time is that it's less about being a woman and more about pushing back against the things you were told or not told. And that it's, yeah, like many things, just a more nuanced story. I'm just really thankful to hear two two women who are <laughs> sitting in very similar places work-wise express things like the two of you are right now, because it doesn't make things sound impossible and it doesn't sugarcoat things. We can smell a rat, all of us out here, if it sounds too easy. So I'm grateful for the realness of it. And that you're both not quitting. Whew, thank God.
<laughs> okay, here's another thing. Salima, before we started recording, Mo, Salima has this great story about COVID-19 and um, what it did for business for her and specifically what really hard times have meant for business in this specific industry, which after reflecting for the past 37 minutes about it, it's intriguing for me that sometimes I want to be like, why don't people just just hire the consultant when they should hire the consultant. Just do it. Just hire them. We just had a conversation yesterday. Do people hire consultants too late? And the answer is yes, sometimes they do. That is a bummer, but that there is like a right time. But what I'm taking away from Salima's story earlier, which I'll hopefully you'll tell again, is that there are systems out there who know exactly when to hire a consultant and they can smell smoke in the air. And that is very hopeful to me, actually. That's whew, okay. When things are bad, people don't, they don't pull the brakes. They look for help. Just for everybody listening, Mo and Salima, they're the ones that can help you when the smoke is in the air. So Salima, will you tell us the story of what it was like headed into the pandemic and into recession times for you for business? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. It was really interesting. And we discussed this, May. Pandemic really hit us, I think, seriously, March of 2020, I would say, right? When things started shutting down and, oh, this is serious. <laughs> no joke. We have to take this seriously. Everything is going to shut down. It is in the area that we were, I'm right outside of Washington, D.C. I'm in Northern Virginia. We started seeing the impact pretty much right away and schools shut down and offices shut down, all of that. I really had a moment of what are we going to do? Our work is helping our clients design optimal structures and do strategic planning and all of that. And I will be honest, things were quiet for a couple of months. And as, and then things started opening back up again, slowly. In, in the in businesses started adjusting to the new reality. We figured out Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all of that. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, we can actually do work virtually. That can work for us. And demand for our services went up, which was a big surprise for me. Because like you said, May, I thought that people would would wait till things were stable before they brought in external consultants and made that kind of investment. And a lot of our clients did not wait till that time. They waited. They started recognizing that they needed to act now to think about the future of their business. Because the future is going to look different. So they had the foresight that this, the future, once we get out of pandemic, how we get through the pandemic, that's going to require some support. And so the demand for our work, whether it was, you know, old design work, strategic planning, we're thinking about what does that future look like? What does it mean in business terms? How do you get there? Leadership development, investing in helping leaders lead in this nuance, this different environment, right? And what leadership would look like a few years from the pandemic, they, br they brought us in to do a lot of that work. So our business went up and I've seen that, right? Even in the last year, 2020, towards the end of 2020, we started again hearing about a recession and there was a lot of tension in the air and companies and businesses and organizations in general, because we work with a lot of nonprofit, we work with government agencies, again, started thinking, what does this mean? What do we need to prioritize, right? To get through this tough time that we are facing. And again, we started seeing an uptick in demand for our work and the type of work we do and the services and the expertise we provide. I realized what we do is primarily help bring clarity, help bring internal stability in the midst of chaos. Mm -hmm. That's 
essentially we enable for our clients, right? And that's why every these past few years, though in general tough, right? For a lot of clients, for a lot of our clients, that has been an opportunity to rethink what they're going to prioritize, what work they're going to do, how they're going to do that work. And that's where we come in, right? And that's where we help them get that level of clarity. I love that because just bringing in somebody to just see a little farther than you can see. And what a simple but wonderful tool. Like oftentimes we come in, May, and help them see things that they're not able to see, even in the present. We help them understand and get clarity around where their blind spots are. That's sometimes the most impactful work we do. It's just help them understand where their blind spots are and what they can do to address those blind spots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm struck with this idea that if our clients knew what to do, they would have done it. You know what I mean? These are hard people running effective organizations for the most part. And I think about my own business and my own practice. I work with coaches. I've brought consultants in to our firm, not because we are not skilled and talented at what we do, but because we just, there's some problem that we're facing that we can't see around the next curve for. And that's because we're often blinded by what is present for us in the business right away. And so I think that's one of, that to me, like sums up one of the really most precious things about consulting and about strategic advising is that it's a, it's outsider's view of the inside of your system often can't see. And I, and I also love what you said about the opportunity that you've seen Salima in your business. And we've seen it similarly. And I think I'm reminded often of an old graduate school professor of mine who used to say, until there's suffering, there, he just really hit that over and over again with us in our work. And I feel like right now, the whole world is feeling the pain of systems that aren't working and COVID-19 on a global scale, which has certainly not happened in my lifetime, has impacted our numbness such that we're not numb anymore and that we're having to look at every system in the land from education to healthcare delivery to for-profit businesses to agencies to government where everything is like under the microscope now around around pain and I feel like I, I feel the collective grief of that I see it in our clients and in the employees who work there and the leaders who are trying to bravely lead I see the pain and the burden of that but I also see thanks to that professor I think the hope that comes behind which is yeah when we feel pain when we notice what's really happening now we have an increased capacity to change because when we're just numb and we think it's all fine and we aren't really paying attention we can't actually change dang it There you go. Yeah. Salim, we have a constant question thread going on in our business, which is where do you land on leadership being a skill you can learn or are you born with it? Yeah, that's a good question. There's no Uh, right answers, but there will be follow-up questions. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I always say this. (laughs) And this might not be the best articulation, but I always say leadership is a contact sport. That is, you have to engage in leadership. It is an action, right? It's a verb. It's not a noun. The more you study it, the more you engage in it, the more you work on improving it, the better you get at it. I guess, in essence, I don't think it's something. Now, we all have certain traits, and I see it because I have a seven-year-old daughter 
certain traits in her that make me think about how that might show up later in her life, right? Mm-hmm. So there are certain traits, but it all has to be honed, right? It has to be something you work on and you engage in to get better at it, right? And to become truly and leadership is really when I say leadership, it's effective leadership to be an effective leader, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no one size fit all. You have to flex and adapt your leadership style based on the situation and based on what is authentic to you. So what we might have considered traditionally as leadership traits that we have to rethink what we mean by leadership in this day and age, because it's no longer that very traditional view of leader and leadership. I think it's, I really think it's, you have certain traits and how you hone those and how you work on those and how you, how authentically you lean into those all determine whether you're going to be a leader or whether you're going to be an effective leader or not. Yeah. Can we just let the confetti rain down on that? I sometimes wish on the pod that we had like a button we could push that where like the party sounds came and that, and I, I could not agree more. I think I was just talking about this with a client yesterday. I was giving a keynote for a group called the Oregon Alliance who provide behavioral mental health services for children that are underserved throughout the state of Oregon and very interesting and powerful group doing really hard work out there in rural communities and in urban communities. And I was talking about that very fact that you just mentioned around our notions of traditional leadership are no longer enough. And it's not like they go away. For example, things like rugged individualism, being able to go it alone, being able to be rational and analytical. Those skills don't, they're not bad in and of themselves. They don't go away, but they're dated in terms of being enough for Mm -hmm. the workforce today. And so Mm -hmm. we have, we are layering on these skills that have never been, never really been more validated or important, like emotional intelligence, human connection, agility and adaptability, where those are not typically taught in graduate schools around the land or even in primary schools, although they're being much more taught in in schools for children today. So I'm hoping it's going to catch on at the advanced schooling level. But we're developing a whole new set of muscles, I think, for what good leadership looks like that I feel really excited about. It feels so much more whole and so much more complete and creates so much more capacity for people to be their authentic selves. And it also, for me, it begins to give us a way to have leadership be less gendered because I think we've had a lot of gender binary that has shown up in what we think a good leader looks like. I think a good leader has often looked like a white And I don't, that's not the case anymore. And also white men are not being asked to be the way their ancestors were in business Mm -hmm. today. So they're being forced to develop skills that actually the culture of men hasn't been strong at historically, like emotional connection, like well-being. And I think that's positive. I think that helps the community of people who identify as men be healthier in the world at large as well. So I feel very excited about that transition. But at the same time, it's fascinating to me how hard it is to let go of our outdated notions. It just feels like the end of a dynasty that doesn't want to give up. We're just, we, it just, it, and I sometimes feel in my mind, I'm like, it doesn't have to be this hard. This is a new approach that actually benefits all. So why does it feel like it's so hard? And I think it's the ending of something that we've known for so many centuries, really, as primary. Yeah, there's fear, right, Mo? There's fear because it served some people really well. And to now adjust and adopt and adapt, sorry, to this new way of thinking about leadership and what effective 
and great leadership looks like, it's, it's going to take work. It's going to mean that some folks that have been comfortable for a very long time will have to feel very uncomfortable to be able to make that transition. And not everybody wants to feel that uncomfortable. <laughs> so it's human nature, right? Why do I have to be uncomfortable? Because this has worked for me up to this point. I see this resurgence of the community is asking for a collective leadership thought, right? No, all of us need something else. And the individual, the rugged individualism of it is not, it's not serving in all the places that it needs to, mm-hmm. which is very uncomfortable if you wanting to be the very tippy top of the spear. I was just going to ask that, like, why do you think it's so hard to let it, why do we, why is it hard to let sacred cows go? But I think it's something about discomfort and Mm -hmm. that we, amount of discomfort we can bear. Yeah, I think part of what makes it hard is that we know that how we work is huge in our identity, right? It's, it matters how our work connects to our identity. It's one of the reasons we work is because it gives us identity, whatever, in whatever work we do. And I think that when we talk about how we change what good leadership looks like, we're actually asking people to change their identity. And if what I've done my whole career, if what I've learned is best, no longer now is what's seen as best, then I have to develop something new that may be a muscle set or a skill set that's atrophied or that I don't even think is really available to me. I can vouch for my own loss. When I was a young professional, I worked inside corporate America and I did what I think many women do in in my role, which was that I assimilated to the insider culture, a lot like the culture that I was working in, which was high tech. And it was only many years later that I got feedback from colleagues that said that actually the way I was showing up was sometimes not that helpful. Man, role oriented. I was. I tended to over talk and not create space for others. And I and people were wanting more warmth, more vulnerability, more connection. I was like, "What? Those are not things that I've been told are okay to do." Mm-hmm. And so now to shine that on became it was very scary for me because I was not convinced that it would work. <laughs> so yeah. I had to develop some confidence and some skill and some ability to say, yeah, actually these are these, I can do these and they do work. And then my identity began to shift around that. But I, yeah. And I think there is, if I may, there is another dimension around this, right? Which is for a very long time, I think we've looked as Western forms of leadership as the ideal form of leadership. And I think going forward, some of the forms of leadership that are present in the Eastern culture will take precedence as we become more, (laughs) we've been becoming more global, more and more more global and divided at the same time. (laughs) I think the inspiration for what a leadership could and should look like, I think that's going to start coming more from Eastern, some of the Eastern philosophies along leading and leadership. And I'm really excited to see what that does as those forms of leadership are introduced more in global organizations. You see the heads of a lot of some of the big companies in the world now, many of them are immigrants actually, or come from non-Western cultural backgrounds. So I, I think there's it's going to be a really interesting space to watch, not only just in terms of letting go of just the more traditional notions of leadership, but what leadership is inspired by in the future, I think will be really fascinating. I love that the two of you talk about business. We're going to watch sports. It's like a basketball game or something. Both of you are like, we're just going to watch. We're going to watch it. We're going to see how it goes. I'm like, okay, this is very inspiring. <laughs> I'm into it. We're going to watch it and we're going to try to influence it. <laughs> You're also going to coach. Salima, will you tell us 
So we believe at Momentum, spoiler alert, that happiness at work and thriving at work are two different things. You can give people a, as many pizza days as possible, might make them happy, it won't make them thrive. So we are in the business of helping people thrive at work. I'm interested in knowing what do you think it takes for people to thrive at work? Number one, do you think it's possible? And two, what do you think it takes? Yeah, two, two very distinct questions. I'm going to start with the second question or the first question. Is it possible? I think it's possible to thrive at work. I think that's very different than being always happy at work. Mm-hmm. I think happiness is just, I think we do ourselves a disservice by focusing on happiness way too much. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, you can thrive, but thriving looks different and it could mean different for different people. But I think in general, it happens when people are able to find meaning and purpose in the mm-hmm. work. I really think so. And I think it's more so with the future generations, right? I think millennials, your generation may, <laughs> since you're self-identified as a millennial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Your people started it. <laughs> Gen Xers. I'm a Gen Xer, right? I'm proud of my generation. We're happy with the way things work. We want better. <laughs> we want meaning and purpose. And I think that's a great, great direction that things are going in. So I think when people are able to find meaning and purpose, whether it's through their work itself or the relationships that they form. Mm-hmm. In- in their organizations that they're part of in the world in, in their companies when people feel accepted when they feel valued when they feel included as their whole selves they're able to thrive and shine not just about we have enough diversity represented but you're truly being able to bring your whole self to whatever work you do you are able to thrive and shine when we are made to feel small or that our unique perspectives don't matter, we shrink. Then the work becomes just a way of making money or fulfilling some obligation. For a long time, I grew up in a big, I started my career with a big consulting firm, a very well-known, right? Great place. I learned a lot, but I struggled sharing my personal story. I struggled admitting that I was an immigrant, that I came from a different culture. Because like you, Mo, you said, I wanted to assimilate. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be just like them. And so I hid parts of myself, which I fully embrace now. And I think it makes me stronger and more effective in the work that I do. And I feel it allows me to connect and resonate better and bring forward gifts, provide added value to my clients. But for a very long time, I wasn't able to do that. I didn't feel like I could do that. So I did not thrive as, as well as I could have, right? I, I, I shrunk in, in, in those environments. So I think it is possible to thrive. What thriving looks like is different. I think it's really meaning, purpose, and really being able to bring your whole selves in the true meaning of that phrase to your work. I think happiness is different. <laughs> I think happiness is almost an impossible goal that we we chase. In fact, I'm reading a book. It's called Wonder Boy. And it's about the turbulent life of Tony Shea, who was the very popular founder of Zappos. Mm-hmm. Zappos is 
to shoes like Amazon is to was to books, right? But more than the business itself, Tony was really, he wrote a book on happiness. He was obsessed with creating a culture of happiness. In fact, they had a Zappos University where they went to other companies and they talked about how they created this culture of happiness within Zappos. That's what they were known for. More than the products, they were known for the culture. It was ground groundbreaking at that time. And he, the book talks about how behind all of that, Tony struggled with a lot of mental health issues. It wasn't all that happy, right? In in this blind pursuit of happiness and that everybody has to be happy all the time, there were a lot of things that the individuals needed that were ignored. Mm-hmm. And that eventually led to Tony's demise and it hurt a lot of people within the organization. So happiness, I struggle with that <laughs> a bit. Mm-hmm. But thriving, yes, I think it's possible. No further questions on that one. (laughs) Just kidding. Go ahead. No, I think it's just so well said. And of course, I agree since I've written now three books on the topic. But I think there's like a nuance that you're describing, especially with that story about Tony, the founder of Zappos, is that the, and you said it yourself, Salima, about you, which is the word that came to mind was like, when we have to orphan parts of ourselves, of ourselves, when we have to alienate our day-to-day identity, we have to alienate parts of ourselves from our day-to-day identity, we are not able to feel the fulfillment that we as human beings crave on the journey to self-actualization. We, it's a compromise. It, it costs us. And I think that it's that hiding, it's that, in, it's that inability to be able to be fully you, whether it's you with mental health issues, you as an immigrant, you as someone who identifies as non-binary, racial differences, whatever, or even just someone who has a radically different idea than else in the room. It's when we have to hide those parts of ourselves, it, it incurs a toll. It costs us as individuals, it costs our families and our communities, and of course it costs the organization ultimately. So then for me, that that begins to ask the question of then what are the conditions that we can build in our systems to not have to ask people to incur those costs. And to me, that's really different than just saying, how do we make people happy? How do we help people be happy all the time? Because happiness is so fleeting. I was struck as you were talking, Salima, last weekend I went out, one of my hobbies, everybody on the podcast hears more about this than they'd ever really cared to. But one of my hobbies is horseback riding. I'm fortunate to have a horse and we ride out in the deserts and trails here where I live in Central Oregon. But I was out on Callahan. We were having a nice trail ride last weekend. The first hour and a half was lovely. But then the weather took a turn and he started acting up and the last half hour was hellish. Like it was not fun. It was not behaving well. I was cold. I had underdressed. And literally I went in about five minutes. I went from feeling really blissful, like I'm in my happy space. I'm doing a hobby I enjoy. It's the weekend. Delightful. To, oh, when will this end? I just cannot wait until I get to the trailhead. I can put this horse in the trailer and get on home. And that's how fleeting happiness how happiness is. It can change it from one moment to another. And I think in the world of work, we've got to be able to hold space for people to be yeah happy sometimes and sometimes pissed off and sometimes overworked and sometimes underworked and sometimes feeling great about their colleagues and sometimes really resenting their colleagues. Like it's all the spectrum of human experience. And when we create spaciousness for that, then those moments of happiness become really notable because they're balanced with the moments of misery, which is part of what makes happiness so delightful is that it's not a constant state. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like if we can embrace that kind of mindset in the way we think about work, we could waste less energy trying to facilitate nonstop happiness, which really is ultimately ineffective numbing and minimization of the full breadth of human experience and the work. 
<laughs> I think there's also a piece of distrust in terms of if people aren't happy, then the work is suffering. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from the two of you is that's not true. It's okay if people are not happy all the time. <laughs> that is okay. And that while the Venn diagram of work and life is like way overlapping, people are complicated enough, messy enough, and smart enough to do both, to do life, to do hard things, to be unhappy, to be happy, and to also work. Like those things can happen. And that if you don't acknowledge that people are capable of that, then you're squishing them. I I don't know. I'm stuck with this trust of that everything is about productivity. I, you're not saying that. Those are my words of that. I sometimes get the message of if they're not working, then oh no. When it's maybe the work is more, how do we get people to thrive here? How do we make it feel like everything is a little more fluid shooting for an upwards goal on people's happiness feature? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's important to have that, as Mo said, that safe space where you can be unhappy when you feel unhappy. I would say that it's now what we see with a lot of tech firms, right? They, they try to create this raw culture. Everybody had to be hyper happy all the time. And that's how they prove the loyalty to the firm or the company mm -hmm. and loyalty to the work. And that's backfiring. We're seeing that now. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I think there's more recognition happening. We are messy human beings that we have all sorts of emotion and all sorts of emotions should be welcome and we should create safe spaces because otherwise if we don't create space for that it can lead to some very extreme and very harmful consequences and let me just say i was thinking as you both were just chatting i some of my best performance has actually come when i'm actually not feeling my best yes. and i think about how i write for example and i <laughs> It's you the best. I mean? It's totally me writing. I'm always saying to my team, like, I'm going into the hurt locker. Like, <laughs> don't bother me with minutiae because this is hard. This writing is hard and it's mm -hmm. not fun. And I don't actually feel happy when I'm doing it. I write nonfiction. It might be more fun if I got to write romance novels, but it's that's not what I write. And so it's difficult. It's hard. It's hard work. And I think sometimes people misconstrue that hard work means we're not happy. Yeah, I'm not happy in that moment in that moment because it's requiring more of me than I sometimes even think I have around cognition and ideas and research. But ultimately, when I go back and I read the work I've created, I feel happy. I feel proud. I feel like this is a contribution. This, How interesting that I got to share this work of someone else or whatever. So I think it's we can produce high quality work even when the emotion we're feeling is not just happiness. It's just too simplistic. It's too yeah. simplistic. So ban happiness as a focus on work. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not happy? Good. Okay. Yeah, I feel bummed that we have to wrap this up. But Salima, will you tell us how our audience can support your work? Will you be specific? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. I would say visit our website, www.szhconsulting.com. I know that you all are going to be sharing links to that. Yes. Talk about our work. Engage with us. Have con We love to chat. It doesn't have to be only based on a business relationship. Reach out to me. Reach out to members of my team. Contact us. Engage. Talk about our work. Spread the word. That's what I would request is seek us out. Talk about us. Spread our word. We try to learn more about what we do. Love it. Awesome. Thank you all. This has been a great conversation, both of you. Thank you. I'm inspired going into the weekend. And, and thank you. Thank you. Let's keep talking. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. 
We sincerely hope that you're enjoying the pod. At Momentum, we believe that everyone deserves to thrive at work, and we are on a mission to make every workplace good for people. It really helps if you share the podcast in your network, leave a review wherever you listen, and like or download your favorite episodes. We want to get our message into the hands of more business owners and brave people leaders who have the power to change. Thank you for being a loyal listener 